Welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. And this is a big week. It's our 50th episode. What I can say is a big thank you to all our listeners for helping make this journey so far personally fulfilling by continuing to offer guidance, commentary and support. So thank you all across the world. With that bit of public relations done, let's just say that the beginning of September 1900, which is where we are, is characterised by small skirmishes that continue to plague Lord Roberts' army in South Africa. It's also the start of spring, which came as a relief for the men who'd slept under the stars, with winter temperatures dipping well below zero in many parts of South Africa. But they'd forgotten what happens in summer as the blazing sun bleaches the bones of the dead and powerful thunderstorms are about to lash the living. September and October 1900 also revealed the limitations of the political will. Remember, there's been an uprising called the Boxer Rebellion in China, which has occupied the minds of the citizens, whereas the show in Africa is receding in the public consciousness. The government of John X. Merriman was to face more criticism shortly. Think about more contemporary wars, the UN and American campaign in Iraq and Afghanistan, for example. After initial reports from embedded journalists with their dramatic stories, then the audience begins to wane, particularly if the effect of the war is not immediate. Think too of how badly the Russians fared in Afghanistan after they invaded in 1979, the result of which accelerated the decline of the Soviet Union. Unlike the First World War, where people in England could actually hear the Western Front artillery barrages at times or were bombed by zeppelins, and in the Second World War, where tens of thousands of civilians were killed in Britain, in the Anglo-Boer War, the hospital ships limped into harbours with fanfare, but no direct effect was felt. So the Anglo-Boer War drifted into the background to be manipulated by political parties as they argued back and forth about ethics, empire and caste. Something like the American experience, where the left and right grapple with internal issues through the lens of distant wars. For the Boers, however, this life-and-death struggle was very much front and centre, as it was for all South Africans. The Transvaal's political leaders were now compelled to retreat further eastwards towards the Portuguese East African border, while the Orange Free State President Steyn had joined Transvaal President Paul Kruger as they moved inexorably towards Delagoa Bay, chased by Lord Roberts. Portuguese East Africa was neutral territory, and Delagoa Bay was a short-term bolt hole that beckoned both political leaders. Steyn had arrived at Vardafal Onda in the final stages of the Battle of Birkendal, which we heard about last week. He wanted to confer with Oom Paul Kruger and the remnants of the Transvaal government. Both were forced out of this town and headed further east to Nelspreit, only 85 kilometres from the Portuguese East African border. A meeting was held on the 28th of August in Nelspreit, and apparently this was a memorable occasion. A number of decisions were made, including the crucial approval of the new method of war espoused by both General de Wet in the west, along with General Coeur de la Rey, and General Louis Boiter in the east. The guerrilla war now had full backing of all political units. Not only that, but the meeting further agreed a radical move based on desperation. President Steyn proposed that the elderly President Kruger would be given six months leave to go to Europe and to use his prestige to achieve the goals that had eluded Leitz and the other diplomatic missions. Kruger was torn. His wife of almost 60 years had remained behind in Pretoria, sweeping their home every day in expectation that he would arrive home soon. She could not join him as she was too ill, and as we know, 
she never saw him again. Martin Bossenbrook, in his book The Boer War, published in 2013, paints the picture most clearly. Kruger's mission was to persuade the world powers to intervene, while in his absence, Skulk Berger would deputize as president. Denise Reitz's father would remain in office as state secretary. Reitz's three sons, Helmar, Jobert and Denise, who we followed about in this conflict, had survived the Battle of Birkendal through good luck mostly. They had been based about a kilometre and a half away from the main battleground of the red-coloured kopi we heard about last week. They were part of the Pretoria Commando and well within the British range of fire at Birkendal. Helmar had been hit and wounded, and Joubert had taken him to a Boer field hospital. Denise had escaped miraculously after being hit twice by Luddite shells. In the first instance, the blast stunned him, and in the second, his horse saved him. The Rowan had become entangled in its reins, and Denise had gone to free the horse. He had run from the antip he had used as cover to reach his panicking animal. No sooner had he reached the horse when a second Lydite shell hit the antil where he had been sitting, blowing it to smithereens and knocking him flat. Denise regarded his horse as a lucky charm, and the second near misconvinced him of the animal's good fortune. In the confusing retreat from Birkendal, though, the Reitz brothers had become separated as they fled to Nelspreit. But Denise's luck held, for he then bumped into his father. Reitz Sr. had abandoned his railway coach and had travelled through difficult country on horseback when they met. In their traditional manner, the emotion of the reunion was understated, but must have been a memorable event for old man Reitz to hear that three of his sons were still alive. Remember the fourth, who was a young teen, had been sent home earlier in the war. Then they said farewell to their father and were not to see him again for 20 months, as Donates Rates says of his father, who was Secretary of State. He remained in the field until the end of the war with the government lager, handling his rifle like a private soldier when they came under fire, which was quite often doing much to keep up the spirits of the fighting men by his poems and his personal example. These brothers symbolized what had taken place for the Boers. Helmar, although suffering a head injury, decided he would ride away towards the northeastern Transvaal to take up arms there. But he was subsequently captured and sent to a prison camp in India. At least for father rates, one of his sons was safe, albeit on another continent. Dendais and his brother Jobert travelled together and headed the opposite direction, northwesterly, as they'd heard a general called Bayers was building a new force near Warmbaths, which is north of the capital Pretoria. Dendais writes, Our preparations were soon made, for they were simple enough. We shot a kudu in the mountain and made bultong and collected a supply of mealies, which is corn. From a neighbouring field, we were on a Spartan diet, and for the next two years such luxuries as sugar, coffee, tea, bread and soap were only to be had on rare occasions. It was over 300 kilometres to warm baths through rough bush country, dominated by black clans, many of whom were enemies of the Boers and wild animals that could kill with one bite or sting. Remarkably, Denise was still on his original horse, with which he'd started the war in October 1899 and was now his lucky charm. Strangely, he never named the animal. One day, en route to Bayers, Denise and his brother Joubert found a group of Boers who were tending the Commandant Gravit, who was dying of his wounds he'd received near Belfast before the Battle of Birkendal. Commandant Gravit was lying on a mattress of straw in a clearing in the middle of the bush, surrounded by his men. Wright says, 
He knew his end was approaching, but he bore his sufferings without complaint and spoke of his coming death with resignation. He called us to him a few minutes before the end to tell us his friendship with my father, and a little while after he lapsed into unconsciousness from which he never recovered. The two brothers helped bury Commodore Gravit under a tree, said a prayer, and rode away. While this was happening, back to the east, near the small Transvaal town of Belfast, groups of Boers continued their sniping of British forces, making their lives a misery. The Canadians in particular were in their line of sight. For example, outside Nuitgedacht, on the main railway line, the Canadians had been repeatedly attacked. Effective control of the countryside ended less than 20 kilometres to the north of the railway and any attempts at scouting beyond that point was dangerous for these colonial troops. Most incidents took place at night or in the early morning because the Boers knew that this was the time that the patrols changed to duty and were gathered together making it better target for snipers and hit and run attacks. Of the Canadians' two mounted battalions, Evans's mounted rifles possessed the most active zone, which was the Middleburg area, and included Neutgedacht and a place called Pan. Here, things were rarely quiet and often quite dangerous. Vigilance could not be relaxed. A lesson Major G.E. Saunders' D Squadron at Neutgedacht learned to their cost on the morning of the 5th of September 1900. That's when a party of 250 Boers, armed with a feared pom-pom and two field guns, and led by Commandant Dirksen, slipped through the Canadians' outer defences and captured six men before the defenders could fire a shot. Two other Canadians managed to escape and found their way back to camp. Meanwhile, Dirksen and his commando were encouraged by their easy access to the Canadians and cantered towards Neutgedacht station itself. They were only 100 metres away when a wide-awake sentry spotted them and opened fire. The Canadians were outnumbered. There were only 120 with rifles and one machine gun, no artillery. Major Saunders was in a pickle and his position was desperate. He telegraphed another Canadian force at Pan and a second at Vondefontein, asking for help while his men emptied their magazines in the general direction of Dirksen's Boers. That slowed them down as they took cover, but the Boers then shelled Nordgedacht camp. However, amongst the Canadians were a good number of skilled riflemen brought up on the prairies, and their accurate fire caused the Boer artillery some discomfort, forcing them to change position. After three hours fighting, Commandant Dirksen gave the order to withdraw when he saw a British detachment approaching from Pan with two guns. The Canadians had survived a serious scare, although Major Saunders had a piece of shrapnel lodged in his back and the second-in-command, Lieutenant Moody, had been shot in the leg. Many other Canadians had minor wounds, while eight horses had been killed, which sounds a trifle, yet this was a real blow. Horses were in short supply and they weren't likely to get replacements soon. Furthermore, scouting missions relied on these fast-moving horses. Later, Lord Roberts was informed of the Canadians' defence, which he described in his usual laconic way as a very credible performance. But the question remained, how had 250 Boers and their artillery penetrated the station's outer defences unnoticed? Remember, the railway line was the crucial logistics supply for the British, as it had been the Boers. The ease at which this commando had found its way past the outer rim was concerning. Had the outpost sentries been sleeping? How else could one explain six men had been surprised and captured 
without firing a single shot. While Major Saunders was transported to Middleburg for treatment, Lieutenant Evans replaced him and then began an investigation into how the Boers had moved past the sentries. The answer was provided by Boer Commandant Dirksen himself. That's because Dirksen surrendered to Evans. According to the Boer Commandant, his men had penetrated the British lines at another point further to the west, then approached the Canadians' outpost before dawn from the rear. The Canadians in this dugout had believed it was a British relief column moving in the dim light. By the time they realised their mistake, said Commander Dirksen, the Boers were in their midst. But there was more to this story, unfortunately. After Dirksen surrendered and handed the six prisoners back to Evans, the truth emerged. The prisoners were debriefed, and it was found that in fact Private Fotheringham had been sound asleep on sentry duty, and he was lucky not to be shot. He received 56 days imprisonment with hard labour. Sergeant Haynes, who had been in charge of this little group, was severely reprimanded for neglect of duty while in charge of a Cossack post. But the Canadians were also involved in their own night patrols, which caught the Boers off guard at times. For instance, in the same week as Dirksen surrendered, Canadian midnight scouting parties under the legendary leader Casey Callahan went out to gather information. Twice, Evans sent Callahan to capture a relatively high-ranking field cornet who was reportedly sleeping in a farmhouse nearby, four kilometres behind Boer lines. On both occasions, Callahan and seven others had no difficulty penetrating the Boer units undetected and locating the farmhouse, but the field cornet could not be found although they took his assistant prisoner. It shows you this cat-and-mouse game saw highly skilled scouts and specialists on both sides plying their trade. While this was playing out back in the capital Pretoria, an incident had taken place that really throws the horror of civilians caught in war and the pure bloody-minded violence that cannot be fully fathomed by those who have never fought a war. It was an incident that also highlighted just how brutal the Eightlander Corps could be. Remember, the Eightlanders were the mainly English speakers who had arrived to mine gold or make money out of Johannesburg in the 1890s. Some had fought with honour, but some were at the forefront of attacks on Boer women and property and had acted with extreme venom. They were almost exclusively involved in looting of Boer property, as well as throughout the campaign were motivated by revenge for what they saw was the terrible treatment meted out to them over the past few years by the Transvaal Republic Police. We have a very important diary by a doctor called James Alexander Kay. He'd been besieged in Ladysmith, and after the town was relieved by the British under General Buller, he had made his way to his home at Pretoria, leaving his wife and children in Pietermaritzburg. In late August, he described the capital as barely functioning, with food extremely expensive and Boer commandos continuing to operate fairly close to the town, particularly west of the Transvaal Republic capital. There was a feeling of anarchy in the air. He writes about a particular incident that was to horrify all who heard it, and involved the Eightlander Corps. Six men from this unit arrived at a village around eight kilometres west of Pretoria demanding information about Boers who were believed to have been operating nearby. A black woman they were interrogating denied any knowledge, but the men thought she was hiding information, and these six then grabbed her young son and gouged out one of his eyes after beating him. Some of the shocked villagers ran off on the main road to Pretoria to alert authorities. 
Then the same six mutilated the woman in full view of the other villagers killing her. Even in the midst of these hellish days, the incident sickened the British and others in Pretoria when the villagers arrived to report the crime. As Dr. K writes in his diary, Five of these men have been arrested and are now in prison. They have been identified, and if they are not shot, it will be a terrible injustice. The five were executed. The sixth remained on the run. These eight landers, who had presumed the Boers to be savages, had slipped from so-called civilizers into the mode of the savage in a moment, murdering a woman and leaving her son permanently disabled. This didn't bode well for the remainder of the Anglo-Boer War, nor for the treatment of black South Africans. Playing out across South Africa daily were the stories of violence, retribution, murder, intrigue and treason. We have been following the trials and tribulations of young Frieda Schlossberg, the Pretoria schoolgirl who had fled the capital along with her family and was living on a farm to the east of Pretoria at a place called Bronkospreit. They had many run-ins with the Boers, mercenaries, the British, a typical story of civilians in the middle of chaos. The two groups they were particularly wary of were the international forces, the mercenaries, and the Eightlanders. These were not of the land, so to speak, and therefore likely to commit the most egregious acts. One night in September, for example, she describes how a Boer commando arrived at their farm. In the dim light of the moon, she writes, we saw a huge dark mass of horsemen coming down the hill. They were the main Boer commandos, retreating from the west, and formed their lager on the plain opposite our house. They had seven wounded men in wagons who were groaning, some were sobbing. That horrified the young girl. None had been treated properly. One had his face shot away, another his leg amputated after being injured by shrapnel, a third had been stabbed by a British hussar's lance. Frieda writes, Father and Joseph, who was her brother, tried to help them, but what could they do? What was it all for? Father asked. Because two stubborn old men could not come together and make peace. Well, there it was. Her family supported the English, yet her father was trying to help the Boer wounded. As I've explained throughout the series, this is a complex country, and this war was a complex war. For example, in the first week of September 1900, Frieda's family found themselves being looted by Irishmen fighting for the Boers, with their commanding officer called Captain Oak admitting he could not control his men. Frieda came close to being raped by this gang of half-starved mercenaries. On the 3rd of September, thankfully, the Irish Brigade left the Schlossberg family farm, only to be replaced immediately by a group of Italian mercenaries supporting the Boer cause. There were 60 men led by a firm disciplinarian called Captain Ricciarti, who she says was a stern officer. These men were led by a completely different sort of soldier. For example, Ricciardi discovered that one of his men had stolen two chickens and had the man chained to the railway line all day in the hot sun. Everyone watched and waited for the train that was to run him over, but none came. That night he was released. The theft of poultry ended for the meantime. These Italian mercenaries were saboteurs, specialists in blowing things up, and Captain Ricciardi was being paid around 200 English pounds per bridge, a small fortune in those days. 
Nearby were two large metal railway bridges, one at Bronkospreit and the other at a place called Babsfontein. These were particularly important, and Richardi claimed the Transvaal government was paying him £300 for the destruction of both structures. British sentries at Babsfontein foiled his first attempt, but the Italian unit managed to completely destroy the other, the Bronkospreit Bridge. They dug a deep pit around the pylons, then laid their boxes of dynamite. However, they had laid far too much, and the following blast killed some of their own horses while launching twisted metal and boulders hundreds of meters away. One boulder, the size of a wagon, rolled through three houses, leaving a huge hole in its wake. Fortunately, no one died, but Frieda was happy when the Italians left shortly afterwards, as bits of the bridge were now scattered around their own home. So it was then, on the 1st of September 1900, Lord Roberts proclaimed the Transvaal Republic officially as part of the British Dominion, despite his troops not being able to move freely in the countryside. As I said last week, this act was one of bombastic pomposity, but such is the way of the administrators of empire. And here we end for this week. Next week, more about the growing political storm in England. If you can, please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes and check out our website, abwarpodcast.com. You can send me a mail via the site or direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until then, goodbye. (laughs) 